If you have your Bibles, please join me in Jonah chapter 4. We're going to finish up our series on Jonah here. If you don't have a Bible and would like to follow along with you in your lap, uh, you're more than welcome to use one of the black Bibles in front of you. It's page 727. If you need help finding it, I would love for you to be able to have it there right in front of you as we're going to walk through this verse by verse. I hope that you've enjoyed the benefits of the time change uh, this morning. Um, it, it, uh, unfortunately, my dog doesn't understand the time change. Um, this morning, this clock in the back that we used was not uh, set yet, and so I made a mental note to um, to just change it in my mind, and then later on in the morning, it did get set, and so I'm completely lost, and I have no idea what time it is, which is unfortunate for you. <laughs> Let's turn to God's word. We'll be looking at Jonah chapter four. Just a reminder, uh, in Jonah three, we took a, we took a look at the Ninevites and they repented of their evil ways. They repented of their wicked ways and God had mercy. God relented from disaster and he used Jonah and him as a messenger to do it. And so you're probably thinking, wow, Jonah's one of the greatest preachers of all time as hundreds of thousands of people have just repented and turned themselves to God. And so you'd think that Jonah would be excited and you'd think that uh, this would be a good thing and we read a much different story. So starting in verse one, we, we read of Jonah's response to God's mercy on the Ninevites. Let's look at it together. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he, sh uh, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, Lord, we are now asking that your spirit would, um, we would feel your spirit's presence in our understanding of this passage. I ask, Father, that um, you would conform our viewpoint, our framework of the world to match yours, Lord. Would you break us to the point where we submit to you and how you see the lost. And in your holy name I pray, amen. About a week ago, uh, Kanye West 
released a new album and it has caused quite a media storm for all the right reasons. I never thought in a million years that I would use Kanye West in a sermon, but it's 2019 and we're, we're in weird times. Some of you might be saying, Kanye who? If you're unfamiliar with Kanye West, he is one of the most significant and successful rappers of all time. Every single one of Kanye's albums have gone platinum, and he actually holds the record for having the most consecutive studio albums to debut at number one on the Billboard charts. He has received 21 Grammy Awards, which places him as 11th on the most awarded artists of all time list. However, Kanye is famous not just for his music, but just as much for his antics and his ego. Throughout his career, there is a great deal of evidence that points to Kanye having this sort of God complex. When he released an album back in 2013, he actually included a song called I Am a God. In a 2012 article from the Washington Post, Kanye is quoted as saying, I believe there's a God above me. I'm just the God of everything else. The article goes on to claim that in Kanye's world, Kanye reigns as a king and he sits on the throne of his ego. To this point in his life, Kanye has committed his life to glorifying one person and one person only, and that is Kanye. And so what's all the uproar about this new album that was released? Well, the name of the album is Jesus is King. And Kanye is openly telling talk show hosts openly telling audiences and people who have interviewed him around the country that he has given his life to Jesus Christ, that he is born again, and he now works for God. And so you have this man who was somewhat of an egomaniac, who claimed to be a God, now all of a sudden has submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And it has caused quite a stir. And the secular world doesn't quite understand it. Right? As you watch these interviews, you actually can see these talk show hosts kind of squirm in discomfort as they have to say the words on air that Jesus is king because they're referencing his album. Right? Unfortunately, there are many believers of the world that don't quite know what to do with it either. The the conversion of Kanye has been met with quite a bit of skepticism from Christians. They they look at him and they they say, no way. God can save anybody, but mm, not Kanye. In response to this, there have been many other Christians chiming in on social media because that's what Christians do a lot of the times. And one specific Facebook post that I stumbled across said this. She said, we pray for a revival. We pray for the restoration of our country, for the salvation of our leaders. And the moment that God begins to move, we say, oh, wait, not him. We didn't mean Kanye West. (laughs) And just like that, 
we put God back in the box that we keep him in. This is an extremely relevant illustration of what's happening in Jonah chapter 4. Right? God relented from disaster, from punishing wicked Nineveh in chapter 3, and we come to find that there's no room for grace in Jonah's worldview of the Ninevites. Jonah puts God in a box, and he needs to be corrected. Let's take a look at it more in depth. Right, the, the scene changes now to Jonah. It had been on the Ninevites and their response to God. And we see Jonah's reaction to a message of God's compassion. And we see right away that there is a stark contrast here between God and Jonah. Right? When God turned from his anger, which is what we looked at last week, Jonah becomes angry. In the original Hebrew, it actually gives a, a, a more intense form of anger. The, the translation could read, he is hot with anger. He is just absolutely inflamed right now. And so you have Jonah, who is supposed to be the, the mature believer, the prophet of God, the messenger of God, who stands diametrically opposed to God. There is a giant chasm right now between how Jonah sees the Ninevites and how God sees the Ninevites. And you'll notice that Jonah's beef isn't with the Ninevites. It's actually with God. Take a look at what it says. As you read, you just get this picture of Jonah kind of pointing this accusatory finger at God. And he's like, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I fled. That's why I left. Why? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He's not mad at the Ninevites for repenting. He's mad at God for allowing them to. It doesn't fit in his worldview. This, these list of characteristics that he just fired off about God is actually a creed or what we would call a statement of belief about God's character. It's used in uh, about six or seven other places in the Old Testament. And it's, it's a creed that Jonah would know by heart. It would have, he would have memorized it and it would have stuck with him over the years. It's a confession of sorts of who God is, what God's character is like. Let's walk through it a little bit. He, got, he calls God gracious. The, the, the word gracious is actually used in other parts of the Old Testament in the context to describe how lenders should deal with the poor. God instructed the Israelites that when you um, loan something out to the poor, don't take collateral because I am a compassionate God. He's basically saying, I do not lord this over you. While you do owe me something, I do not lord it over you. He's a compassionate God. Sorry, he's gracious. He's gracious. He calls the God merciful. If you have the NIV, though, um, this is the term compassionate. Right? It would would describe him as compassionate. The primary word uh, for compassionate, what it means to be compassionate, uh, in its most literal sense, is to be maternally soft. 
The the idea that we get uh, is this soft compassion that a mother has for her child while the child is still in her womb. This is the compassion that God has. He is gracious. He is compassionate or merciful. We read that he's slow to anger. He's not like Jonah. You know, as soon as Jonah doesn't get his way or feels that he's been wrong, he grows angry and not just angry, but intensely angry. It's quick and it happens fast. It escalates fast. But God is slow to anger. Some of us have this mental picture of God. That he, he's this, he's this large man with a giant white beard and he's got lightning bolts ready and he is just scouring the earth looking for someone to strike down. Looking for us to slip up, just waiting for the moment to, to, to strike us and that he's, that he's trigger happy. But that's not the picture that scripture paints of God. Yes, God is willing to punish and he is able to punish, but he is patient. That's 2 Peter 3.9. This is what Peter writes. He says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. No, no God is not this tyrant that's just waiting to smite you. He's patient. You know, with the amount of evil and wickedness, in the world and rebellion that comes up against God in our world, it actually appears that God is seeking out people not to actively punish them, but he's seeking out people to actively grant grace. It seems like he's actually looking for a reason to give grace because he is slow to anger. Continuing on, we read that God is abounding in steadfast love. This is an intense description of the type of love that God is. It's an unrelenting love. The the idea that we get behind this this kind of love is actually this idea of loyalty. It's the type of love that a husband or a wife is called to have for their spouse. Think about that. I take my wife from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish all the days of my life till death do us part. And there too I pledge myself to you. That's loyalty and that's powerful to say that no matter what happens, through the good times and in the bad times, through the rich times and the poor times, in the times of health and the times of sickness, in the times that I don't deserve to be loved, in the times that you don't deserve to be loved, I will choose to love you. God is abounding in steadfast love to the point where even when we are unlovable, God loves us. He chooses to love us. That is abounding, steadfast, loyal love. And finally, Jonah says that God is relenting from disaster. We spoke of that last week, so we don't need to spend any more time on it. But uh, at the end of the day, God chose to turn away from Nineveh's punishment. It was his choice. He certainly could have, but he didn't. Now you read that and you think, well, this is a great God. He's, he's amazing. But in verse 3, Jonah says, therefore... 
therefore, which is a key word in scripture. Anytime you see the word therefore in scripture in your own study time, it's always referring to something that has come before it. It's a cause and effect. This has happened. Therefore, this is going to happen. And so what Jonah is saying is, God, because you are all those things and because this has happened, therefore, therefore, it is better for me to die than to live. I want to die. What? Jonah, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? See, what's happening is, is Jonah saying, I don't want to live in a world where wicked people don't pay for their evil. I don't want to live in a world where bad people don't get punished. This may sound extreme, but I would claim that Jonah's attitude is not as far off from where we are as we may initially think. Many of us naturally lean to a worldview of what is called the common sense logic of justice. The common sense logic of justice. It says that good people get good things and bad people get bad things. Because that's common sense, right? And the common sense view of justice is much more deeply ingrained into us than we care to admit. As a child, when something didn't go your way or you thought your brother or your sister reaped the benefits that you deserve, what would we always say as children to our parents? That's not fair. That's not fair. I heard, my, I heard one of my kids say it just yesterday because it's a part of us. This, this comes through how we portray gift giving at Christmas, doesn't it? Right? He, he's making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. Right? This is what we tell our children at Christmas time. If you're good, Santa will bring you something good. But if you're bad, boy, you got something else coming to you. And so be good for goodness sake. This common sense logic actually comes through in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. If you're unfamiliar with the story, let me briefly describe it for you. The story goes like this. Jesus is actually talking to a bunch of sinners and Pharisees. That's his audience. And he tells this story in that context. There were two sons. There was a younger brother who decided to insult his father and went to him and said, Dad, I want my inheritance early. I want to take your inheritance and I'm going to go, I'm going to move out. Right? And the father surprisingly gives it to him. And so this younger brother, this son, goes out into a far country and he lives a wild and reckless and rebellious life where he spends all of the money and he's left with nothing. And so it gets to the point where he's actually tending to pigs. And he's so hungry that he's looking at what the pigs are eating and saying, that looks yummy. I find that desirable. So this son has literally hit rock bottom, has literally rebelled in the most dramatic way possible, and he decides, I'm going to go back to my father, and maybe, just maybe, I can pay off what I have wronged him. Maybe I can work for him, and, and we can make amends, and we can be reconciled, but something that I can do. And so he makes his way to the father, and if you're hearing this story for the very first time, you're probably thinking in your head, because this is common sense, that boy's about to get a whooping. Right? The father's going to legit pull the belt out and he's going to kind of be waiting there on the porch for him. 
But in a surprise twist of the story, that doesn't happen. The younger son shows up and the father embraces him. And not only does he embrace him, he reinstates him as a son. He brings him back into the family, not as a slave that's going to work for acceptance, but he brings him back into the family and then he throws a party. It just doesn't make sense. Now there's another brother in the story, the older brother. The older brother hears that his younger brother has come home and he hears about the father throwing a party for him and he gets very, very angry. Why? Because that's not fair. He goes to his dad and he, and he just starts yelling at him and he says, all, all these years I've been faithfully working for you. I've followed all the rules. I've been good. And that son of yours has squandered everything and you embrace him? And then the story ends. You see, the parable of the prodigal son is just as much about the older brother as it is the younger brother. The older brother tried to earn favor with his father by, be, by doing good deeds, and he grows angry when the younger brother, who doesn't deserve it, receives grace. The church is full of older brothers who are trying to earn God's favor and are looking down at the younger brothers, the Kanye Wests of the world, when they, re- when they come to seek forgiveness. And herein lies the danger of the common sense logic of justice in the economy of mercy. It's heresy. It's heresy. It's a distorted picture of how God works because you cannot earn favor with God by your own doing. The only way to be reconciled to God and to be accepted by God is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And so what we see in these first verses of Jonah chapter 4 is two conflicting worldviews, two differing perspectives that are at odds with each other and mutually exclusive. They can't both be happening at the same time. There's Jonah's human perspective that says the good people should earn good things and the bad people should earn bad things. And then there's God's perspective that says, but wait, I am a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. In our life, because we are sinful, we have a natural bent away from God. In our worldview, how we view the world needs to be broken and conformed to God's worldview. And this is what God attempts to do with Jonah in verses 5 through 11, and he uses an object lesson to do it. Let's take a look at it. In verse 5, we read that Jonah set out from the city. He makes a shelter for himself, and he went out because he wanted to see what was going to happen to the city. He's waiting for the show. He thinks maybe, just maybe in 40 days, God will change his mind and he will rain down fire and brimstone like Sodom and Gomorrah style. And if that happens, I want a front row seat. And so he camps out. 
Now, the shelter that he built for himself was not adequate to protect him from the intense heat that could be deadly in the ancient Near East. So in verse 6, God provides a plant, this giant plant that could be used as shade over his head. And the end of verse 6 is fascinating because it says that God did this to save him from his discomfort. That word discomfort is very close, if not the same word, to the word disaster that's used in chapter 3, verse 10. And so this, this plant that God provides, this salvation from Jonah's discomfort, very much alludes to the Ninevites' salvation from disaster. This is the object lesson that Jonah represents Nineveh and Jonah is put in Nineveh's shoes and both are spared from some sort of impending disaster or in Jonah's case, discomfort. And then we're told that Jonah is exceedingly glad for the plant. He sees value in the plant and he is thankful for God's graciousness. And so right away, you can kind of see Jonah's inconsistency, right? Wait a minute, Jonah. Just a second ago, you were angry with God because he relented from the disaster for the, for the Ninevites. But now that it concerns you, now that it concerns you, your tone has changed. You rejoice greatly for God's provision and compassion. And then the inconsistency continues in the passage. As we continue on in verse 7, we are introduced to another aspect of God's nature, right? In this object lesson, we see that he has the ability to deliver, and now we see his right and his ability to destroy. God appoints a worm, and the worm comes and eats the plant, and it withers away, and it's no longer useful, right? Essentially, God has lifted his hand of grace off of Jonah, right? God has the ability to destroy Nineveh, and it wouldn't compromise his character in the least bit, but he relented. Jonah gets angry about that. And so in this object lesson, when God sends the worm, once again, he is doing to Jonah what Jonah wanted God to do to the Ninevites. And this wasn't some form of harsh punishment or ironic torment for Jonah. No, God wanted Jonah to feel what it would have been like for the Ninevites should they be punished. Now at this point, you would think that the lights would finally click on for Jonah, that it would all make sense and that he would understand where God is coming from and that he would begin to see the world the way that God sees the world. But in verse eight, it couldn't be further from that truth. Once again, Jonah is angry and he tells God, I am so angry that I would rather be dead. He's so fed up with God's view of the world that he wants to die. And then God challenges him on it. And he asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Now notice that God specifically asks if there would be benefit for Jonah to be angry for this plant. God is intentionally drawing uh, Jonah's attention back to the object lesson, back to the plant, and he, he does this with extreme intentionality. And Jonah says, yes, I do have a right to be angry about the plant, angry enough to die once again. And at this point, God has Jonah right where he wants him. 
This is checkmate as Jonah is condemned by his own words because he walks right into the point of the object lesson that God explains in verses 10 and 11. In the strongest way possible, Jonah expresses that this plant was important to him. In his own words, Jonah declares that this plant had enough worth to live. And then God lays into Jonah in verse 10. He says, hey, Jonah, you pity this plant. You care about the worth of this plant, but you didn't work for it. You didn't make it grow. You brought nothing to the table when it comes to this plant. And not only that, it was here yesterday. It's gone today. Its life was fleeting. This was a meager plant that lasted a day. It was simple. It was quick. Yet you care so much about this plant. I couldn't help but think of of the many times that my kids have gotten little toys from like a McDonald's Happy Meal, right? And they grow attached to these cheap pieces of plastic. And then when they evidently lose them like an hour later, you would think that these toys were worth millions of dollars because of how they react. This is how Jonah is acting toward this plant. It was of supreme value, even though he didn't work for it and its time was brief. And then in verse 11, God says, Jonah, you care so much about that plant that has very, very little worth in the grand scheme of things. How much more, how much more should I care about the city of Nineveh, a very important place, a very important city that has 127,000 people who don't know their left from their right. He's calling them ignorant. He's saying that has 120,000 ignorant people who are lost in their sin and their wickedness. They are so lost and they are so sinful that they don't even know how to save themselves. So how much more should I care about these people that I created that I labored to make in my image and now are drowning in their lostness. How much more, Jonah? And Jonah is at a loss for words. He doesn't know what to say. He doesn't respond and he's left speechless and the book ends abruptly with God's open-ended question. And so what do we do with that? What do we make of this end? Well, I believe because the book does end with an open-ended question, it's very easy to lift this question and put it into our context and apply it. I think there's two main points of application here. One for the unbeliever, right? The wayward one, the rebellious one, the Kanye Wests of the world, if you will, and the ones that are believing, the religious elite, if you will, the Jonas of the world. First, for the unbeliever, we come to find in verses 10 and 11 that the worth of the Ninevites is purely based on the fact that God created them. In the beginning, when God created man, he said, let us make man in our image. The value of the Ninevites is not based on anything that they've done or haven't done. If it was, they would be about as worthless as they come. But no, their value is determined by the fact that God created them 
and God cares for his creation. We learn that God's motivation is not based on any kind of merit. It's not based on any kind of accomplishments. This is purely based on his love for his creation and his desire to reconcile them to himself. He's saying, I created you and sin pulled you away from me and now I will do whatever I can. I'll do whatever I can within my true and perfect character to draw you back in. He cares for his creation in such a way that it is his mission to reconcile creation to himself. He cares for his creation in such a way that he will go to radical lengths to bring his creation back into relationship with him. See, in Genesis 1, he created man in his image, and man and women walked with God. In Genesis 3, they walked away. Sin entered the world. Death entered the world, and they were separated from God. And when sin entered the world, when mankind was separated from God, God realized that his love for his creation was so much that he initiates a plan right then and there to bring him back in. Genesis 3, 14 and 15, God is cursing the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve. Essentially, he's cursing the devil. And he's telling the devil, that woman that you tempted that gave in to sin, she will bear children and they will bear children. And at some point in the line of human history, there will be a man that will come and crush your head. From that point on, being one of the first references of Jesus, we see that God has always had a plan of salvation. Yes, he had to expel them from the garden. Yes, we had to be separated. But God has always intended to bring you back in, and it happens through Jesus. You have to know that God has gone to great lengths. He has gone to death himself to bring you back in. You have value, even though you are a sinner. And even though you are more like the Ninevites than you care to know, you deserve the punishment, you still have worth because God created you and he loves you. You are not beyond disrepair. And so would you come back to him? Would, Would you discover what God has done for you through Jesus and submit to him. If the Ninevites can can repent and turn to God, if Kanye West can repent and turn to God, you can turn to God. The second application of the chapter is for the believer. In this passage, Jonah has a worldly perspective He has a framework, and in these final verses, God absolutely dismantles Jonah's worldview. As God destroys the plant, he destroys Jonah's sinful perspective. Jonah is trying to find a false solitude in his narrow worldview and his narrow theology. Some of us are riding a religious high horse, And we try to define who can come to God and who can't. In our own conversations, in our own mindset, we tell the unbeliever that they have to clean up. right? They have to act a certain way and they have to look a certain way and they've got to talk a certain way and they've got to smell a certain way. And then, maybe just then, God will accept you. And God says, no, 
I accept you on the basis of my grace and on the basis of my love, which was most clearly demonstrated through Jesus on the cross. My acceptance for you is not on the basis of anything you've done. And so come to me. Come to me and I will forgive you and then I will help you. I will be the one to clean you up. I will give you my spirit and he will reign in your heart and I will create in you a new life that allows you to turn from those things. This is a gentle reminder that Christianity is not about I was bad and now I'm good. Christianity is about I was dead and now I'm alive. Jesus restored my heart. Some of us have put God in a box and in doing so, you are limiting his glory and you are limiting his grace. Our God cannot be put in a box. We put God in a box and he shatters the box. And so how do we react? We must come to a point where we allow God through the teaching of his word, by the Holy Spirit, to come in like a wrecking ball and completely destroy and dismantle our sinful, distorted worldview because it's only when it has been broken and it's only when our sinful perspective has been dismantled that we can truly see the world through the eyes of a compassionate and merciful God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. You see, this is a matter of perspective for us. We must see the lost the way that God sees the lost. These people are not our enemies. They are prisoners of war, locked up in the bondage of their sin. And we must follow God's pattern of compassionate pursuit. Our job is not force the unbelieving and the lost people to conform to our empty standards. No, our jobs, our job is to introduce them to Jesus and let him conform them to his likeness. And then you see that it comes full circle. Just as man was created in his image and we walked away. Jesus continues to create people in his image as he brings them back to life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we would ask that we would see its truth in our life. We know it's true, Father. And I pray that if there's anybody in here who feels like the wayward one, that feels like the Ninevites, that today would be a day of salvation, a great day of them not trying to live up to any kind of standard or expectation, but to just give them over to you, Lord. And I pray that those of us who have been following God for a very, very long time would stop putting you in a box. That we would see your glory for what it truly is, Lord. That we would know our place. That we would know how wonderful and just just mysterious your grace is for the lost. Remind us, Father, that we too were once dead in our sin and our transgressions, but Christ stepped in. I pray for the rest of our time this morning as we close in one more worship song, Father, let it be glorifying to you. 
I pray as we collect our offering that you would use these resources to make the name of Jesus known and make it great so that the ones that are most lost, that are furthest from you, would be able to hear your name. Would you allow us the privilege to be a part of your salvation plan, Lord, as we connect with our family and connect with our friends who don't know you. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.